Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I am joined with someone I've never met, but is probably the person I'd most like to meet of all the guests that have uh, graced my presence, or graced me with their presence, rather, uh, on the Into the Impossible podcast. And it's a, it's a friend of mine who's a dear human being. It's Steven Strogatz, uh, one of the simultaneously most humble but most accomplished people that I've ever known. He got his PhD in applied mathematics from Harvard, and he's currently the Jacob Gould Sherman Professor of Applied Mathematics at Cornell, which would almost would have been my alma mater, uh, Steve, had you guys accepted me. Uh, the two times I applied. So, you know. <laughs> well, it had nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, so well, thank you. Wow, Brian, that's a very nice introduction. I, I feel the same way. I can't wait to meet you in person. It's going to be great. We were supposed to meet about a year ago uh, when I was supposed to come to Cornell to give a colloquium for the astronomy department. Many good friends over there. And uh, something came up. There was some cancellation of most world travel. Uh, but I am hoping that the invitation will remain good and that someday I will be able to uh, to meet you in person there. And I'm actually secretly hoping to get you here maybe by proffering uh, an invitation uh, during next January. When I, Perfect. I think Ithaca is not the greatest. I mean, it's, it is a travel destination, but usually not in, in January. <laughs> Well, nothing, nothing compares to San Diego. <laughs> you start off this wonderful book, which we're going to talk about, although not exclusively. I'm going to try out a whole bunch of crackpot theories. I'm going to talk about the art of podcasting because you are uh, also a, a raconteur and a podcast host extraordinaire uh, from whom I've learned much. Uh, but I want to start off with Infinite Powers, your delightful latest book in addition to Sync and The Joy of X, yeah, some of your more most famous books. Uh, the latest book was also a New York Times bestseller, and it's just such a beautiful book. But it starts off with someone that I regret, Steve, that I never met, and it's mm -hmm. uh, Herman Woke. Herman mm -hmm. Woke wrote The Winds of War, The Kane Mutiny, and I actually had a chance to meet him because he uh, is the namesake of the Woke chair of, and it's Woke, not W-K-O-K-E, like some people might be hearing it. Uh, we won't talk about politics today. Uh, <laughs> but W-O-U-K. And he lived in Palm Springs, and he had the chair called the Herman Walk Chair of, um, of Judaic Studies here at UC San Diego. It still exists. And, um, and I never met him, and I was always, oh, I'll meet him. You know, I'll, I'll take the time. It's a couple-hour drive. But he was always so vivacious and vibrant. I never thought it would uh, be a limitation to my being able to visit. And that shows you how the, the truism Steve, that no one is as dumb as an intellectual because I never met him and he passed away about three years ago at the age of 103. But you open this book with a recollection or a statement about him and how he spoke to Richard Feynman. I wonder if you could if you could recount that and then um, and, and then tell us how why was that sort of the impetus for this book? Sure. Well, yeah. Um, so Herman Woke was really the one of the greatest, most popular American novelists of my parents' generation. So the World War II generation needed someone to tell their story. And he had been a sailor. He was in the Navy, um, and he wanted to write something like War and Peace for, you know, for Americans. Um, but hopefully, you know, something that'd be popular and readable. So he, he was researching this big book about World War II, and uh, he thought he should include something about the Manhattan Project, right? I mean, the building of the atomic bomb did end the war. 
in at least in Japan. And so he wasn't sure who to talk to about this, but people told him, well, you got to go to Caltech. And um, while you're there, you have to talk to this guy named Feynman. So Woke, who, who came from a background in you know literature, history, philosophy, the humanities, um, goes to see this tremendous physicist, Richard Feynman. And as they talk, they start to realize they have a lot in common. They're both Jewish guys. They both grew up in New York. You know, they um, both love to tell stories, have good senses of humor. And so they, they're, and of course, Feynman had also served in the war. He was a very young guy working on the Manhattan Project, like in his early 20s. But they also have some big differences that, that Woke was devout, uh, orthodox, whereas Feynman was extremely atheistic. So anyway, they're kibitzing and they're having a good time talking about everything. And uh, But on his way out, as, as Woke is walking out the door, Feynman stops him and says, hey, uh, I just have to ask you one thing. Have you ever, do you know calculus? And Woke said, well, no, he, he never studied it. And so Feynman said, well, you better learn it. It's the language God talks. And that then became the title of a book that Herman Woke wrote about his conversations about science and religion um, with a variety of scientists over the years and philosophers and other people. So anyway, why why did I tell that story at the beginning of the book? Um, because it does a couple of things for, for the book, I feel. One is it sets up this really uncanny idea that there is a language of the universe, and that that language is written in mathematics, and specifically a particular dialect of mathematics, calculus, and even more specifically, the sub-dialect of differential equations. So I wanted to tell the story of how we as a species have come to understand the workings of anything that changes smoothly in time or space by... Um, learning this weird language of calculus that, you know, as Feynman said, Feynman doesn't really explain what he means about the language God talks, but I think any working physicist or mathematician understands that, you know, the laws of fluid dynamics, the laws of gravity, even quantum mechanics, all these laws are written as differential equations. And so he urged Woke, you know, if you're going to write about the atomic bomb, you better learn calculus. But the other thing I like about Woke is that he stands in for the general reader, in my mind, that I Woke goes on to tell that he tried to learn calculus. He took Feynman seriously, and he had a real heck of a time learning it. He could not, you know, he tried reading books with titles like Calculus Made Easy. It didn't work. He went to a high school class. He started falling behind. You know, I mean, he really tried. And so I felt like the reader I have in mind is someone who would like to know what calculus is about or they're curious. Or maybe they even took calculus but never saw the point of it. Um, that's who I'm writing for, someone who, who is open-hearted and wants to learn, but who is really mystified by every exposure to calculus they've had so far. Yeah, that meshes nicely with my mission on the Into the Impossible podcast. I always say it's to deconstruct the tactics of the taciturn, you know, because the old joke, Steve, uh, this, this holds doubly true for applied mathematicians, uh, is that how do you know an applied mathematician is outgoing? Because he looks, at, he looks at your shoelaces when he talks to you. Uh, but uh, actually, I've had on his, you know, nine Nobel Prize winners. I had on uh, Jim Simons, who's a renowned mathematician and philanthropist, obviously. But also, you know, even Pulitzer Prize winners, astronauts, and very few of them are able to communicate 
these ideas to the lay, lay public. And I feel like, you know, I've kind of gotten uh, maybe a little bit off the deep end, Steve. You should, you should you know, step in and intervene as you see this. But I see, I, I keep saying it's a moral obligation. We get paid by the taxpayer, by, you know, in my case, mm-hmm. the state of California as well as a public uh, servant to uh to to study and do things that we do for fun the joy of what you do is evident not only in the title of your books but but in your exuberance and your irrepressibility which is so infectious and <laughs> but we you would do it for free and so of course what, right what, sure. what is that you studied how to be um like i had neil degrasse tyson on last week he was talking about how much he studies the craft of storytelling i wonder uh-huh. Should we make it a requirement along with partial differential equations? <laughs> mathematicians and scientists have to learn how, if nothing else, to communicate to the people who pay their salaries. That's a very interesting thought. We don't, we never even consider that, do we? And yet, you know, I am actually doing that, not as a requirement, but we're offering a seminar that we call the Mathematical Communication Seminar. And I've got grad students and faculty and postdocs coming to it. It's a small group, maybe 15, 20 people. But we are trying everything to get better at this. We've, we we um, watch videos on YouTube of people giving Fields Medal addresses or Nobel acceptance speeches or just ordinary colloquium. Or, you know, like in other words, we try to analyze what's working or not. We, we read some of the best writers. We think about um, going on... TV or radio, how do you get your message across, crafting the so-called elevator pitch in one or two minutes. Anyway, so we're trying to think about all aspects of written and spoken communication, and we don't really know what we're doing because there's no textbook for this. I mean, it's we're all just winging it using our instincts and using the best role models we can find to try to imitate. But yes, the, the short answer is yes. I wish, I don't know about requirement, but I totally agree with you that it's... Um, it's a moral obligation. It's also good strategy. If you want to be a successful scientist, if you can communicate well, I mean, of course, you have to have the chops. You have to be able to do the good work, have creative ideas, have the technique to solve the problems that you're trying to solve, have some luck. Even with all of that, if you can't communicate, um, you're not going to get the grants. You're not going to get your papers in the best journals. Your colleagues aren't going to understand or appreciate what you're doing as much as if you could really get your point across. Right. I I feel like it's a baseball, you know, it's like major league baseball where, you know, we're just teaching them how to hit home runs or run around the bases, you know, when you hit a home run, but we're not not teaching all the soft skills, all the, you know, kind of just blocking and tackling to mix metaphors. uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, now you're also a pot. We're going to get into some serious red meat, I hope for my, uh, or some tofu. Uh, don't worry Uh, stay tuned because i have some uh, real-time calculus which is always very dangerous to do but i have some actual real-time non-linear dynamical questions to ask the world's most foremost expert steven strogatz who's my guest today on into the impossible before i do that you've interviewed a lot of the most brilliant people around the world for uh your joy of x podcast for quanta can you Talk a little bit about Quanta. I was a guest. I was honored to be on it. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for being part of it. I think your standards have certainly uh, risen since that time. Uh, (laughs) uh, Tell me, what is that like? And have you noticed this, too, with these brilliant intellects that, you know, you have to do a lot of coaching and kind of get them out of their shells and Mm -hmm. really make interesting what is fascinating uh, in these interviews that you do, and and you do it so well. First of all, you had no training in that, right? No, of course not, no. Yeah. 
No, I, well, thanks. I'm glad you you feel that it's working. Um, we would love to have more listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so if any of your listeners would give us a try, that would be great. But um, it's really hard for podcasts to be discovered or to be noticed. There's a lot of people trying hard out there, um, and there's a lot of fantastic, you know, things to choose from big investment of time for people. So we understand why it's difficult. But as far as how to get people to open up, I don't know. I I mean, I like to talk to people about their lives. Often, if you get someone talking about their mentors, you know, their beloved teachers, or even their parents, it softens people up. They will, they will get out of lecture mode, which is the default mode for all of us professors and researchers, um, and into just warm human connection mode. So um, I usually like to start with something soft like that, but it, and then I also don't prepare very much. I don't know about you, but I, I have found that when I prepared a lot that I would, I wasn't listening as well. If I didn't know what was coming, like for instance, I had Frank Wilczek, who I think you also maybe interviewed recently. Is that right? I was, yeah, I did. I was going to ask you about that specific podcast, that and oh, Robert Digraph okay. when you had him on too. Yes. Well, so anyway, with Frank, yeah. I mean, Frank has done such magnificent work in physics and cosmology, or at least with implications for cosmology, some of his stuff, potentially, if he's right about dark matter and, and axions. But I mean, when I was talking to him, I just wanted to stroll down memory lane about his work on asymptotic freedom, what is the nature of the force that's holding quarks together inside the nucleus, and um, you know why don't the protons in the nucleus just repel each other? I mean, they are. They're trying with their electromagnetic repulsion, but the strong force is holding them together even more tightly. So anyway, and I have never studied nuclear physics, not really, and so I didn't know anything much about quarks and jets and asymptotic freedom. So I went in as a beginner, just knowing the words, but trying, and, and Frank explained it all very clearly to me. But um, along the way, he talked about his father in very affectionate terms, his father who hadn't gone to, you know, really, certainly not college. I'm not even sure if his father finished high school. Um, so it was, it was a really warm, nice discussion. But then by the end, at some point after Frank had finished explaining work he did as like about a 21 or two year old graduate student, you know, and he's now probably 70 or so. He's like, well, you want to hear anything I've been doing since then? And I did. And then he knocked my socks off by telling me in a very um, slow burn kind of way. I didn't see where he was going. He was but anyway, it ended up that something he thought of might explain dark matter in a very natural way that would grow right out of the standard model. Yeah. So, and I didn't see that coming. And you can hear when you, if you listen to that podcast, you'll hear my audible surprise. Wow. At, at like, oh my God, what? You know, like you save the best for last, I said to him, because I had no idea we were going to be talking about dark matter. So I don't know. I mean, th what I'm saying is by not preparing, it gives a genuine connection if you really listen to the guest. But of course, it also makes it kind of meandery, which might be a deficit <laughs> in our show. I mean, if I, maybe if I had more structure, it would be better. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I find them really delightful. And I, what's, what's so great is that sometimes you'll just like the interview with Digraph, who is the director, I think, of the IAS uh, Institute for Advanced Study. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about art and, and why visual art is not as deep or effective or emotional as uh as music and you guys start going into this discussion of why you know you can get moved to tears by music by some notes of, of music a score he talks about classical music but it can hold for anything 
but you never start crying. Ah, oh, the Mona Lisa. I mean, you might. Have to over. And <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? It is. It's so. I mean, that's an interesting point going off on it, and it made me think. And I want to get your opinion. You know, really, really on this as well. But like, if that's true, then by dimensionality, in other words, music is one dimensional. That was kind of the thing that that you guys came to the like. You have to get it revealed at the pace that the author wishes you to experience it, because it's a musical one dimensional, you know, format. Art, you know, painted art like this thing over here is, is two dimensional. But then maybe I was thinking like, is three dimensional sculpture like less less moving or more moving? Like, how do you think about that? And then I started to think, what would a four dimensional creature? What kind of art would they produce? But, but uh, I find it so interesting. You don't have to react to that. But but well, I, I mean, I do have a little reaction. I don't even really remember, especially what Robert and I said. But to me, the thing about music is time. Yeah. The music unfolds in time, and and art. Uh, well, of course, film can unfold in time. Cinema, literally, meaning something about motion. But but snapshots or pictures on the wall really are at a disadvantage in terms of emotional power because time is the—I mean, uh, Robert and I did start talking about this, that the time is the emotional dimension, much more so than space. And I think because of memory, because of loss, because of dreams of the future, these are all things that have to do with the time, with time as a dimension. And also the, the our mortality, you know, that we, we get to live for a certain amount of time. But we can move through any part of space. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that and keep on this theme because I've had, you know, Carlo Rivelli on the podcast. And he has a book, The Order of Time. Mm. I've had on many people. I have uh, some, some folks come. A brief History of Time I had on. Uh, not Stephen Hawking, although I would have loved to. But I had on his closest collaborator, Leonard Milan now. And they talked about their writing and Stephen, et cetera. And, and now I've got a lot of uh, folks coming up like Julian Barbour and, and others. But um, and a lot of these thoughts that people are thinking about have to do with time. And I think of it in terms of, of course, entropy. And this is where uh-huh. I'm going to tap into your expertise. So Stephen is, is perhaps known for I mean, you're known for so many things. I mean, you're the father of, you know, uh, along with Duncan Watts, the your student the uh, you know small network uh, small world theories and and uh, network analysis network science I think it's called now with a mm-hmm. paper that has over forty five thousand citations at last check I think it's it's growing exponentially as we speak but but I started to think over these all these interviews I've done interviews with stand up comedians and I start to think like um, it's interesting because time according to Carlo and Frank uh, Frank will check on as you mentioned you know Frank's basically his thesis is that you know time is what we call things that clocks measure and clocks yeah. measure things changing. And of course that's related to the second law of thermodynamics. And if there was no change or you were at absolute zero, you'd experience no time change. And so I asked a comedian once I said, uh, is it easier to make people sad or angry or to make them laugh? Because there are actually many more ways I could make you sad right now, Steve. Like, uh, the state of, of ways I can make you, I mean, you're already very happy. You're at top university in the world. You've gotten all this acclaim, you know, like you, it's very hard to make you, ha- you could win the, the, the um, you know, Nobel prize, or you could win uh, the lottery or something, but those are very few compared to all the ways life could get worse for us. I see you know? where you're going. I see. And so I'm wondering, Interesting. You know, when we think about these things, like how firmly rooted is that experience? The emotion is it intimately connected with entropy? In other words, huh. we experience time as so painful or, or, or melancholic because it's associated with entropy. Geez, this is a really deep and interesting question. Um, 
Yeah. Whoa. I'm, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I see where you, it's a really interesting analogy you're making because we're, we're taught in physics that when we think of a state that's highly ordered, it's sort of like there are very few ways it can be in macroscopically, like from the outside, there's only a few ways that you could arrange the, the small parts, the microscopic configurations. Jeez, I'm just using a lot of jargon. It's like in no, short, it's fine. It's in, fine. In, in language, used to it. well, okay. But I mean, planar language, it's like you're almost saying there's nowhere to go but down, right? If, if you're too successful or if things have worked out well for you in your life or you've had a lot of luck, you get a natural feeling of concern, like my luck is going to run out. And that's because you're in this highly negative entropy type state, right? I mean, you're in a very abnormally ordered or lucky state. And so eventually the laws of chance will catch up with you and your luck will run out and uh, you're going to get sad as a result. <laughs> so it's a really interesting analogy. Um, but you're saying somehow the wistfulness or the melancholy of time is a direct like emotional response to the second law that things tend toward greater entropy. And I don't know. I mean, certainly aging is a kind of entropy or, uh, you know, or, or is I'm, I'm just sputtering. I, you caught me uh, not really knowing what to say. You want to help me out? Do you have some thoughts you want to yeah. give me some, some yeah, of your thinking I've on it? I've got a couple of follow-ups. Actually, yeah, because of this this notion of, of small world networks that you and Duncan, your student, um, <clears throat> you know, worked on uh, you know, a couple decades ago, it got me thinking a lot about networks and uh, for good and bad. And mm -hmm. where I'm eventually going to go with this is is the relationship between entropy and networks. And I'm not, I'm just not clear if, if such a notion exists. But here's what I was thinking along the lines of what I just said. You know, I have a big family, a bunch of kids, uh, have uh -huh. married, and um, but there's there's sort of I was making this argument, you know, to a friend of mine who's single. He's a perpetual bachelor. He's scared to commit. He doesn't want to have kids. You know, he's having fun with his girlfriend. I said, you know, you should not only get married, but you should have as many kids as possible while you can. Yeah. But there's some biological limits on it, as if you don't know. But also, I said, I made the argument from, from network theory. So if you, have, um, if you have a family of size N uh, people, <laughs> then uh, there are exactly N choose two pairs of, uh, of relationships, of dynamics. Yep. And there are all these like sayings and I was trying to like figure out, can we construct the thermodynamics of happiness, the entropy, you know, reduction that occurs when um, when families have a lot of kids. And I've noticed that happy family, like big families, they can be unhappy, of course. But like I come from my my adopted family was family of 10, 10 brothers and sisters, you know, and they were the happiest people that I knew uh -huh. uh, the, the Keating side. And I started thinking, like, how many pairs of related? And so I went through it, and you can do the math very easily. Uh, and it comes out, you know, for for that many networks, it uh, it grows, it grows basically quadratically, right, with the number sure. of. Um, so, but the cost of having n kids, you know, probably grows linearly at the number of kids, right? Um, probably, yeah. Although, in terms of interactions between the kids, that can cause it cause it to be difficult to deal with them right right because sometimes they have their own so th so there might be a little bit of quadratic or even <laughs> cubic terms in there but right. but yes okay i'll take uh, let's first stipulate that yeah probably the cost is proportional to the number of kids right. roughly so you only need one minivan you only need one house you only need you know whatever that's true uh, and some of them are independent of the number of kids like the minivan it doesn't matter if there's four or five right, kids exactly. right they all yeah 
So sort of True. the benefit, because um, there's, a, there's a saying, Steve, I'm sure you've heard it, like you're only as happy as your least happy kid. And yes. you have two daughters yes. and, and you always talk so nicely about them. Um, but like if, if one of my kids is unhappy, yeah, it's true. But is the converse true? Are you, you know, can you be as happy as your most happy kid? Maybe. Mm. And if so, would the happiness function grow? Uh, what I'm getting at is <laughs> you should have more kids because the benefit grows as N squared, but the cost grows yeah. as N. So the net benefit leads as N. What do you think about this crackpot well, theory? When you say so the N squared benefit is because there's all these relationships. So you're sort yes. of implying that individual kids, because they have more oper- they have more possible partners to goof around with or have fun with or have heart-to-heart yes. talk with or whatever they need to do. Yes. And, and by the way, they're going to spend half their lives without us, right? I mean, yeah. the average parent, you know, dies at you know, a certain age, and, and then the kids are left with themselves. Their parents aren't right. around half right, their right. lives. Well, it's an interesting argument. Um, I, it doesn't occur to me because, uh, you know, there are also other costs that you put on society by having too many kids, sure. though you could decide you don't care about that and it's every family for themselves. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I mean, we we made the decision to have two kids and stop mm-hmm. because we thought it was nice for them to have each other, which it has turned out to be, mm-hmm. you know, be, being in an ecosystem, <laughs> a family with two people your own age approximately to grow with and to fight with and to just, you know, all the things that make life interesting seemed to us more desirable than um, just having one child or or zero. Uh, I kind of grew up effectively by myself. I did have a brother and I do have a sister who's still alive. My brother passed Mm -hmm. away, but they were much older than me. My mother had been married before and then her first husband died and she had these two little kids and then my father married her and then they tried for a long time and eventually had me so so my brother and sister were 12 and 10 years older than me so effectively i was like psychologically an only child you know in the house nobody picking on me nobody doing irrational stuff it was a very in speaking of entropy i mean everything was clean and well ordered and well regulated so <laughs> what it meant was like in relationships later in life people would yell at me or get mad at me or have fights with me i was always pretty terrified of that because i never had anybody picking on me or being crazy so i mean i think it sort of set me back in a way like having brothers and sisters around I think is very developmentally healthy for people to learn how to deal with conflict and other stuff. I, I didn't really have that. Yeah. No, it's sort of the same argument I hear, you know, where people shouldn't homeschool their kids, you know, because then they're only getting exposed to, you know, this very small, small network and they're not getting diversity of opinion or backgrounds or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that was just something interesting I, I wanted to run by. If you thought it was totally crazy, I'd stop thinking about it. But um, but I want to turn well, now back. There's also a linear cost to the person bearing the children. Mm, yes. Of right. Course. I yeah. mean, maybe more than linear, because uh, what is it like to have four kids versus five physically? Right. I don't know. I that, so this might be a very male-centric thing we're expressing here. How does your wife feel about the idea of a large family? Well, I keep saying, you know, we're at least halfway done, you know, once we hit the, <laughs> the magic numbers that we... Um, <laughs> so maybe turning away from families now, back to calculus. Okay. Uh, wonderful book. Um, although, I, actually, before we leave that, Steve, is there a notion of, like, this entropy come into play in, at all in, like, network theory or network science? Is there, like, with clustering... I mean, is it is it beyond just like a counting of states? Is there some way to characterize, classify a network 
It's a good question. And I, I haven't seen people talking about entropy. There are ideas of curvature. I mean, like you can have discrete versions of curvature, just like we have continuous curvature. But um, does entropy generalize to network? I mean, we have entropy in dynamical systems. We certainly talk about, mm-hmm. aside from thermodynamics and classical physics, I mean, even in nonlinear dynamical systems, there are people that calculate things about information and entropy and all of that. So those ideas do work outside of statistical physics. But I haven't seen anyone use them in networks that I can remember, but it seems so natural. It's such a powerful idea. Yeah. So it, there must be. I'm just not up enough on the literature to give you a good answer on yeah. it. it, it, it yeah. Um, getting back to calculus, um, so again, you, you, part of your mission was to evoke Herman Woke, who was like a very uh-huh. educated, I think of him as a, as a Renaissance man in yeah. our century. You know, he was someone who was incredibly curious. He actually ended up writing a book, as you know, called The Language God Talks. He uh-huh. wrote a book about the superconducting super collider cancellation. He's a very brilliant and peripatetic intellect. Uh, but I, I forwarded, you know, your. I gave a copy of your book. I bought many copies. One I gave to one of my guests, whose name is uh, Kamal Ravikant. He wants to learn quantum mechanics. And, and, and so I said, well, the only way to learn quantum mechanics is to learn uh, calculus. And the only way to learn calculus from now on is going to be me giving out copies of your book, Infinite Powers. So I want to thank you for that. <laughs> your book is based on, and I gave it to my father-in-law, who knew Herman personally, and he said um, uh, that this, uh, that his, the eventual book that he wrote combined Herman's curiosity about physics and mathematics with his traditional Jewish beliefs, beliefs about faith in God. Maybe mm-hmm. later, if we have time, we'll talk about the proliferation of books and things about God, the God particle, the God equation, the mind of God, all these God yeah. references by, by, by atheist scientists mostly. <laughs> but yes. anyway, um, I gave my father-in-law your book. And he said, um, I've got, I was surprised by the reference to Herman Woke. And as I have gotten farther into the book, I am overwhelmed by the author, Stephen Strogatz's skill as a writer and a storyteller. The description of Archimedes' work and humility is so amazing. Now my head is full of triangles. Also, and this is, a, you know, he's, he's not a young man and he's, a, he's very brilliant, but he's not in, inclined to mathematics whatsoever. He goes, also, there is a spiritual quality about Stephen's book. That brings together mathematical discovery, music, art, and the idea of infinity. I wish that all mathematics could be taught this way. Many of us who hit the wall with calculus, those half steps, would have made it through if we had Stephen. So I want to commend you on that, and I want to highlight this infinity principle. First up, I'm going to ask you a rapid-fire question. Can any entity, any mind known to exist, comprehend the concept of infinity? Even a computer. Can a computer comprehend infinity? Well, I'm sort of stuck on the word comprehend there. I mean, we can certainly define it in various ways mathematically and work with it. Um, I guess I'm thinking in terms of like visceral understanding versus intellectual understanding. You know, I mean, I can I can operate in a consistent way with various types of infinity. So to that extent, I think a pretty ordinary mind can comprehend it in an operational way. But can you really absorb it in your bones um well i don't know that's that's that of it's through the ages this has been something that has inspired all kinds of feelings in people dread you know the fear of bottomless pits and the abyss and i mean 
some people say that that you can go crazy thinking about infinity, you know, like that you really shouldn't go there. So I don't know. I mean, it's tempting to say, no, no human finite mind can really comprehend infinity. But I don't really know what that means. Mathematically, it feels like we know how to operate with it. Mm -hmm. My claim is that, you know, I'm not really that worried about, uh, you know, alpha zero you talk uh, alpha infinity, whatever. I'm not worried if computers can beat human beings at chess. That actually doesn't concern me, or I, I don't think about that as an important question because I know uh-huh. it's true. But I wonder: can a computer create chess? Can a computer create the game of Go? Can, uh-huh. In other words, can it come up with the idea of infinity? I don't think it can. I think it's something unique about human beings, and that's why, to me, Stephen. Calculus is a uniquely human, you know, as the old, uh, someone once said, some mathematician, you'll correct me, that, you know, God made the integers and all the rest is mentioned, Virk. Uh, but, I, I, but I think, <laughs> but, but only humans could come up with calculus. Just like I think only humans could come up with general relativity. Only uh-huh. humans can come up with things that are derivatives of calculus. No computer can. What, do, you, do you agree? It doesn't sound right to me. Yeah, I, don't, I doubt that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, just on principle, because I don't believe there's anything fundamentally mysterious about us. Uh, when I say the, here, the word fundamentally is doing a lot of the work. So in other words, I'm, I'm a completely materialist person when it comes to this sort of thing. To me, we're not that different from the, the machines. We're made of atoms that came from stars. You know, we're organized much more brilliantly and in a sophisticated way than any computer for now. So, so of course, we pat ourselves on the back that we're much, you know, no computer could ever do what we do. But we've been saying this for a long time, and we keep moving the goalposts. You know, it used to be no computer would ever beat us at chess. Now that they've done that, we regard that as a trivial activity. You know, so now we say no computer can recognize a woman pushing a baby carriage across the street. They're still terrible at pattern recognition, but they're going to solve that too pretty soon. And I mean, I, I'm, I guess, a, well, like an optimist. If you, well, Of course, it could be real trouble, but I, I sort of think that, that computers in principle should be able to do everything we do because we're made of the same stuff. And I don't think there's anything extra in us. They're faster. They have better memories. You know, they're just not there yet. So, but if I'm wrong about that, which of course is quite possible, if there's something like soul or, you know, a fundamental thing that makes us human, like some some spirit of God in us, like if you were a Christian, and you, I don't know if the Holy Spirit would come into play here, but something that's ineffable beyond pure, beyond physics, <laughs> then sure, then, then computers will not be able to do it because presumably they don't have what we have. But I don't, I don't believe any of that. I think we're, we're made of star stuff like everything else. It's interesting. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking to go there, at least not this soon in the podcast, uh, because, you know, talk about God and all these, ex- I love that you do and that you did. I was well, thinking more practically, because you say something okay. so, so brilliant in this book. You say, when you see like an infinite, like when you see pi, I used to think yeah. of it as geometry, but you say, yeah, no, yeah. it's calculus. No, I it is. Yeah. And I used to think natural logarithm. You say, no, think calculus. And I of think course. just from a practical standpoint, you know, one third, you can't represent that unless you had an infinite computer, right? So the well, I mean, one, third is perfect, one third is perfectly fine if you work with, with fractions. Right. You know, right. One, but if you want to start converting into decimals, that's the yeah. thing. I mean, because of being 10-fingered creatures, we like to massage 
our representations of numbers into this decimal format. Yeah, one third doesn't play that well with decimals because it forces you to take infinitely many threes after the decimal point. But, you know, you get used to that. And also, in the spirit of physics, if you just want a good approximation to one third, you take as many threes after the decimal point as you need and say good enough. And actually, it doesn't take that many to get an approximation better than, you know, the scale of the Planck length or whatever we think the smallest amount of space or time will be in physics. So, so for all practical purposes, you could compute very well with, I mean, I make that little calculation in the book that if you measure the, the length of the biggest thing we know, say the diameter of the known universe, something you've thought about, I know, and you taught me about, actually. I was surprised, actually, when you told me it's more than two times the, you know, it's not just the age of the universe times right. the speed of light times two. Right. That, because what? Because inflation was going so fast at the beginning? Or even if there was inflation, just the expansion of space itself is taking place independently of time or can take place faster yeah. than the speed of I light. guess because no signals are getting sent. There's no speed limit or... That's right. Okay, but anyway, we're off in a different place there, but... <laughs> But anyway, the, the basic point was, I think, still correct, that if you measure this whole size of the universe, its diameter in terms of the smallest distance we know, the Planck scale of quantum gravity, you need something like 60 digits. So, so in other words, talking about pi that's now computed to 50 trillion digits, <laughs> you know, is big overkill <laughs> if you just want practical things. But on the other hand, if you just want to think about, that's why real numbers are so unreal. Right? I mean, there's nothing in reality that corresponds to real numbers, but yet they're mathematically very beautiful. You can't really do calculus without them. Right. So you, you would think that, uh, I'm surprised in some ways that you would think that a computer, I, I think of, uh, of things, maybe it's because of your, you know, just profound expertise in applied mathematics, but in the pure mathematical sense, and again, just because uh, you're not a pure mathematician doesn't mean that you don't know infinitely more uh, than I do about pure mathematics. And I guess I'm thinking of things again with regard to entropy. In other words, um, there are many, many more unprovable things than are provable things. And and especially given Gödel in the language of, you know, it seems to me that Gödel's theorem combined with Turing's proof of what is and what is not computable would suggest that there's really a tiny number of things that are computable in, in by, by computational standards and then layered on top of that as an even greater filter, the paucity of, of things that are mathematically self-consistent via girdle uh, would mean that there's almost like a very small number of things that are mathematically true and computable. So therefore, how could a computer come up with calculus like ab initio? How could, how could an artificial Galileo, a Ga Galilei I.O., come up with uh, Galilean relativity? Or how could an artificial Einstein come up with the general theory of relativity? It seems like there is something different. It's not, it can't be purely computational, thanks to Turing. It can't be purely mathematical, maybe thanks to Gödel. So how can you say, um, I sorry, sorry to sound like I'm on 60 Minutes, but no, it's good. <laughs> that you think that, that um, you know, a computer could, you know, comprehend infinity or could, you know, whatever comprehend means or, or actually invent the concept of infinity, yeah. like just given. I, I don't, I mean, for me, these questions are always easy to, because I can retreat to saying that, well, a computer has done it. I mean, we've done it in this belief that we're nothing special. In, 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 with regard to this question, that we're made of a particular kind of, you know, wetware, the biologists would say. We happen to use carbon and water and all that in our cells instead of silicon. 
and we have our our neurons running at you know kilohertz or something instead of gigahertz speak but, for yourself you know speak for <laughs> yourself. i'm on a millihertz <laughs> anyway i just don't see any real particular obstacle that that computers have human computers have done these things over the course now okay here's the if i were to push back against my own argument i think the big the big deficit that computers have is they don't have bodies yet right they don't get to move around in the world and sense the world the way that's our big advantage we have bodies with with interfaces we have eardrums that vibrate when sound waves hit them we have fingertips that you know we have all kinds of things we have eye obviously you know eyes everything else there there is computer vision now i suppose computers can hear i mean my microphone right now is hearing me um so once computers get better at censoring sensing the world and get to move around and have the other thing is emotions, right? That's interesting too. Computers at the moment have been have not, as far as we know, been imbued with emotions. And right. we have desires, including the desire to understand, to think, to create. Um, they don't have any of that. So that's they're really missing a lot of important stuff. And so, yes, they haven't thought of calculus yet. They have proven theorems in very creative and even elegant ways. They've been told to do it. They haven't been taught how to do it. I mean, they've actually invented. See, this is why I get emotional about computers, because <laughs> mm -hmm. I am a very active and interested chess player. And when you yeah. see the games of the best chess programs now, they don't play like machines anymore, even though they are machines. They play in this very romantic, swashbuckling style, sacrificing material. They look like they're imaginative. Now, you could say that's just stupid. Of course, they're not imaginative. They're just machines. But they. But then, what are we? I don't know. I mean, we look. We think we're imaginative too, but we're just using parallel processing. Or anyway, I'm kind of sputtering. But I, I just, I kind of don't see the argument for anything particularly special about us. You can also go in the other direction. When I think about my dog, when I see the emotions on my dog's face, I know I'm not kidding myself. People will. Some people who don't have animals will say, "Yeah, you're. Come on, you're being." You're being soft. That's not true. Your dog doesn't feel anything. Your dog doesn't really love you. Your dog doesn't miss you when you're away. But anyone who has a dog knows that's wrong. That's not true. Of course they do. Right. <laughs> so, and the anyway, dog, so, makes it, dog makes it into the acknowledgments of your of infinite. Yes, Murray is in the acknowledgments. Murray was a very good companion for me when I was walking a lot and thinking about the book and frequently dictating into my iPhone. That's. That's my. I wonder how you wrote your book. Actually, I mean, when you wrote um, "Losing the Nobel Prize," did you type? Did you talk to yourself and record it? What did you do? A little of each. I did. I did some of each. Um, you know, sometimes in the shower, it's a little inconvenient to, to you know have a have a notepad in there. So I would record on my iPhone, or I, t I had a bunch of notes and. Um, yeah, yeah. So that, that's how I did it. But I didn't have a dog. I, you know, I only had three kids running around at the time. <laughs> uh, but uh, actually, that leads me into something I've always wondered about mathematicians. When Feynman used to wonder about this as well, and I wonder how you think about it. Um, when you count, let's say you're counting to ten, do you like see numbers moving through the air? Do you are in your mind, or do you count like one, two, three? Because I know for me, like I have to sing the alphabet song to get mm -hmm. like what letter comes after X. How do you visualize number? How do you count? Just practically speaking, ask a mathematician about numbers. I'll be like, what's that? Yeah, counting. Why would I count? Um, I think I would do like what you described. For me, it would be sonic. I would hear it. And I, same thing with the alphabet. I can't, if you said, where is L in the alphabet? 
or what comes after L. I would hear it in my head, L-M-N-O-P, you know, like that. So, so yeah, it's, it goes way back to childhood, and it's very auditory for me. I don't picture the alphabet on the molding of my, you know, first grade classroom, like, so I don't see it. Mm-hmm. But the math I do is very visual. So I, just like I like chess, and I like thinking about the pieces moving around on their two-dimensional checkerboard, I my subject is dynamical systems, which is all about things moving around either in real space, like planets in the solar system, or imaginary things moving around in an imaginary space that we call state space, where each point represents the state of a hard cell or of a population or whatever, a bunch of concentrations in a chemical reaction. Basically, the idea is to describe a state of something, you have to give a lot of numbers, saying what's the concentration of this and what's the voltage across that membrane and whatever. You give all these numbers, and each axis represents one of those numbers, and you could have 100 of them, and then you think of that as one point that's an ordered 100 tuple, you know, 100 numbers separated by commas, and we picture that as a point in a 100-dimensional space that moves around as the state changes as time goes on. Except we're not really picturing it. I, I'm taking liberties there. What I'm really picturing is three dimensions and something's flying around in 3D, like a drone flying around in space. I have my imaginary point moving around in 3D, but I pretend it's kind of 100-dimensional. Mm. Interesting. So um, also thinking back, if we can go back to the to networks and friendship and stuff like that, one of your previous book on calculus was called the calculus of friendship mm-hmm. um, which i haven't read but but i was uh, wondering if we could explore a concept that uh, made me think of at least the title of the book but but maybe some of the uh, work that you've done as well and networks and and so forth but that was this week's uh, torah portion and we should say we we have talked about the torah in the past but this week's torah portion revolves around gossip Oh. And the, the gossip uh, that is engaged upon can be manifest in a human being back in these days at that time, 3,000 years ago maybe, uh, that you would actually have a physical symptom, like your hand would turn white. It was called leprosy, but they don't really think it was leprosy. They don't know what it was. Um, but it made me think uh, – and actually gossip is considered the most uh, – one of the most awful sins because it's basically a sin that's impossible to repent for. Uh, there's a famous story of a man who told a, who told tales about his rabbi, and they were truth. I mean, the whole point about gossip is that it's true. If it's false, it's a lie, and so it's it's sort of less less uh, pernicious. But anyway, this man is telling a story about his rabbi. It gets back to the rabbi. Then the guy goes to apologize to the rabbi, and the rabbi says. Um, uh, you know, and he says to the rabbi, "How can I make amends to you? I feel so sorry uh, for the harm that I've caused your reputation." And the rabbi says, um, "It's very simple. Just go to your house and get a pillow." The guy's like, "Whew! I thought it was going to be a hard, a hard uh, form of teshuva of repentance." And the rabbi says, uh, okay, "When he brings over the pillow, uh, the man goes, okay, here's a pillow. I didn't know you needed a pillow, but here you go.'" Uh, and the rabbi goes, "No, no, no. Just simply, I want you to cut it open and uh, go in the town square and just shake it out." And the man goes, "Okay, fine. If, if this will absolve me of my sins, so he does it." And then the rabbi goes, uh, waits a couple minutes and says, now go pick up all the feathers. <laughs> and the implication being that it's impossible yes. to do that. It's impossible to redo that. But I wonder, you know, is that one of the perils of networks and, and small or big is that, you know, there is harm that these things can land at any place and they're almost irreparable. And, and you see that obviously with social media and things that grow, um, you know, virally. 
there are perils of these networks as well. And I wonder, you know, are we a victim of these networks? Are they kind of just so ingrained? You make the point, you know, brain cells or neural networks act this way, human uh, uh, social networks act this way. Are we are they like the microbes? You know, there's like more microbes than human cells in the human body. Are mm-hmm. we like at their mercy of networks or are networks something we can master and subdue as, as God says? Oh, I, I worry about it a lot. I've been worrying about it a lot. I, I um, wrote a little essay some years ago. People could probably find it on the Internet easily. It's called Too Much Coupling. Mm-hmm. So, so there was an edge John Brockman's group, yes. Edge, um, he asked scientists, maybe you've written for them too. Yeah, they often have... uh, Katinka, who you, was your agent, I guess, or she, yeah. she was my friend, and John Brockman, yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they often ask, at, uh, they've stopped doing it, but they used to ask at the end of every year what's some question, and then people would answer the question, um, and they would then frequently be collected into a book. So one year, I think the question was, what are you worried about? Yes. And I worried about too much coupling. Now, what I mean by that is coupling is a word that we use in dynamical systems to describe the influence of one thing on another. I mean, I guess it comes from the old days when you would have two train cars coupled together by, you know, iron that grips one to the other so that they're attached. Um, We speak of a couple, you know, like people who are coupled. A couple, they're connected. So coupling is is when two things are connected in such a strong way that they can really affect each other profoundly. And um, when you have, instead of just individuals, you have a population of individuals that are interacting like people in a social network or like species in an ecosystem or all the different cells in your heart or whatever. These are all coupled dynamical systems. Now, we learn in dynamics that that often as you increase the strength of coupling, if you let the individuals hear each other a little bit more or influence each other a little bit more, there's often a phase transition when something qualitatively, dramatically different happens that you couldn't see coming. I mean, an example is on the Millennium Bridge in London when people were walking across the bridge on opening day. It's a footbridge. If you've been to London, you may have walked across it. It's a beautiful thin footbridge. Yeah. But but on opening day, the crowd was so big that they ended up setting the bridge wobbling side to side in a way that was very uncomfortable for people. And they had to hold on to the railings. And But what was weird is that as the bridge started to wobble, people got in step with the wobble because they've that's a kind of common human reaction when you're walking on a wobbly surface that's going sideways. Like if you stand up on a train that's moving fast and it starts jiggling, you may You may spread your feet out wide and walk in step with the vibrations of the wobbling train. People walked in step with the wobbling bridge and inadvertently pumped more energy into the bridge, which made it wobble more, until eventually you had the vast crowds walking in step, not on purpose, driving the bridge. Anyway, they had to close the bridge. But... And then repair it, and now it doesn't do that. But right. the point was that that the bridge engineers couldn't see this transition to spontaneous synchrony when they did tests of the bridge in their computers simulations that didn't do this. And it's only because later experiments showed it's only when there were enough people on the bridge it suddenly started to do this. Below that, nothing. So when I worried about too much coupling in this essay, what I was talking about is that we're doing a lot of social experiments on ourselves at global scale, and we don't know what the heck is going to happen in terms of phase transitions. You know, the Internet has done this to us. Now the pandemic is doing it to us through airline networks. 
you know, I mean, viruses are traveling across the world. Nazis can find each other much more easily than they used to, you know, thanks to the Internet. All kinds of things that, and things that we can't even anticipate now, I'm sure attacks on the power grid or other things are all being made possible because of this enhanced connectivity that we are walking right into. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I worry about it a lot. Yeah, I found uh, I found that essay as you're chatting and I was listening as I uh, work with my millihertz processor. And you made this really kind of ridiculous claim, Steve. Uh, I have to call you out on it as one of the problems of of uh, of such of, of such coupling. This ludicrous idea that you know it could lead to a worldwide pandemic. And I, I just want to give you the chance to recant that. that. <laughs> well, right. So this essay came out when 2013 or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. No, it was obvious. I, of course, I wasn't alone in imagining that this could happen and it will happen again. I mean, the, these things are just in the nature of the modern world now, and and we haven't even yet endured the worst of it. On the other hand, there's been great benefits for this interconnectivity. Think of all the great stuff you can watch on the internet now, or even this podcast that we're able to do, yeah. and you can reach people. So education, I think, has improved in certain ways because of it. I love being able to find great performances by some of my old musical heroes. You know, that's all there on YouTube now. So I appreciate yeah. some yeah, of yeah, these. I got a text or a uh, Twitter message from the national champion of chess of Nigeria. Huh. He wanted to be connected to, you know, he wanted to play like a speed chess game with me. And I said, well, my, my rating is probably the logarithm of yours. Uh, <laughs> and I referred him to a Cornell graduate by the name of James Altucher, who is a, uh, is a well-known podcaster uh, as well. And so hopefully they'll play a game and maybe uh, the world will be richer for it. But actually it comes to pandemics. Um, you know, I was noting to one of my friends at one point, like during the pandemic, that flatten the curve was really a calculus notion, and and really that uh, more people learned, you know, learned at least mm -hmm. one thing about uh, about integral calculus from uh, from from the pandemic, at least. Uh, but yes, in in this notion of of kind of the unbounded uh, power for good or bad of of networks, I think we have to be we have to be quite quite careful. I want to ask you about about math as a mathematician. And this notion that we have, as I mentioned before, I'm having people like Michio Kaku on, I've had on, um, you know, the colleague of, of, of Stephen Hawking, who ends his great book, A Brief History of Time, with an exhortation that if we find the final theory of everything, we will know the mind of God. And Michio Kaku's new book is called The God Equation. Um, what do you make of, of the fact that, and, and of Feynman's, you know, the language God talks, what, what is this uh, about, you know, this notion of God? Is it just a stand-in or kind of a call-out for authority's sake? What is, why do physicists who are mainly, you know, fellow members of the National Academy or American Academy of yours, uh, that th those people are you know, mostly secular, right? So what, what is this notion of God? Why does it come up so often? What do you make of it as a materialist yourself, as you say? Well, I'm not sure why different people do it. I, I found myself doing it in, <laughs> in my writing, and my wife pointed it out to me. She said, there's a lot of God in this book. Yes. And she was reading some of the chapters. And I was not really very intentional about it, but a lot of the great scientists have been religious. Um, certainly Kepler was. I mean, Kepler studied to yeah. be a minister, before he became Kepler, the astronomer and mathematician. And, and Galileo, who often is championed by atheists, 
because of his standing up to the church, or at least trying to for a while before he had to recant, you know, understandably, otherwise get killed like Giordano Bruno did. Um, Galileo was, as far as I can tell, not an atheist. Galileo seemed to want to reveal God's handiwork. He thought he was doing something very devout in in figuring out what God had created in the laws of motion and and um, so he I don't think he found it particularly I mean it's true that the church was taking some heat from Galileo but the church is different from God <laughs> I mean in his mind yeah so and and similarly Isaac Newton clearly was was very interested in God and did spent a lot of time writing biblical um, Chronology, trying to figure out when the world was created, and anyway, so you know what he claimed was his biggest accomplishment, Steve? Absolutely, his work on the Bible. You know, well, right. Well, go ahead, you tell me that he died, Yeah, he died as Christ did, a virgin. Uh, he claimed oh. that was a. a, a I haven't a, heard this story. Yeah, he, this you know, but I've also found a, a lot of you know what is thought about Newton, you know, in particular. Have you heard this story, uh, Steve? That the law of gravity had to be modified basically introduced this god of the gaps kind of injected himself into into the laws of gravity to stabilize the solar system against the gravitational instability of resonance phenomena so when the planets every so often would come together uh, their orbital periods would resonate and they'd be uh, it'll cause a dynamic instability and apocryphally newton injects god but but actually i guess also by the name Stephen Meyer, who's an, who's an intelligent designer, I should say, uh-huh. he pointed out that you can find, and he was a philosophy PhD from Cambridge. He's a very well-respected philosopher. Anyway, he, he points out that nowhere does Newton ever make that claim. Yeah, uh, I don't believe, yeah, I've never heard that either. Yeah, but I have heard that from other, from actually, Mitchell oh, who mentions that in, in the God Equation. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson mentioned yeah. it. You know, it's, it's I very, find both of them pretty unreliable historic yeah. historians. I, I don't would not listen to Neil or Mitchell on a lot of things, honestly. I think uh, I'd like to have some discussions with both of them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, I have, and maybe I've. I, I tried to be time. very careful with the history. I really did. I tried to read the best historians I could find. You see, it's interesting. There's a lot of mythology about our our heroes, the scientists, and we tell stories. Like you'll notice, I don't tell the story of Archimedes and the bathtub. I don't tell the story of Archimedes getting stabbed by the Roman soldier and saying, after he says, don't disturb my circles. So much um, apocrypha in the stories that we tell of scientists. So you really do want to learn from the from the historians who have looked carefully at this. And so I did try to do that. But, but back to your question, why so much God talk from people who don't believe in God? Yeah. When we're thinking about these awesome topics, about the, the harmony of the universe, it's natural to start to become a deist, of, I mean, or something, some this feeling that there is profound mystery in the structure of the laws of the universe, the big question, I mean, for me, would be where do the laws come from? You know, there's so much math in the universe. I say calculus is the language of the universe. Well, how can that be? You know, why? Why would it be like that? And I don't know. That's a big one. <laughs> big. T- you know, I often resort to some kind of multiverse style argument that the universes that don't have properties that are mathematical enough probably are stillborn. You know, they can't support structure that's sophisticated enough to allow life to exist to ask the question. So we just happen to be by luck 
whatever that means in a universe where it's all mathematical. That's not very satisfying, and I don't know if I really believe that. I can see why people want to say, oh, because God made it like this. But and I can't really make peace with that explanation either. So I don't know. It's I'm, it's all very mysterious. We talked about this before, right? The, the Torah says uh, maybe you shouldn't ask about the beginning. <laughs> yeah, the, well, the, the Torah the, the Torah is kind of silent on it, but the, the rabbis in the Talmud, the second holy. I should say, I mean, in Bereshit is what I was talking about yeah, with the, the, the interpretation, the midrash. Right. They said, "Be careful," you know, which is uh, a good thing that we don't follow it at the NSF, you know, under grant proposal renewal. <laughs> the Talmud for the grant proposal. <laughs> But uh, it is true. There are so many myths that you bust so beautifully in this book, including like this, the hatred of Leibniz and the, and, and, uh, the smallness of, of Newton. Although he was a character, I think. Newton's a character, but I didn't really spend any time about the, the – so many calculus books would spend a lot of time on the rivalry or the, yeah. the priority dispute mainly between Newton and Leibniz's followers. Um, Leibniz had a whole army of people making the case for him. I don't. Leibniz himself seems to have been very impressed with Newton, as he should have been. I mean, he yeah. he he tried his best to keep up with Newton and would send him his best work. But it became clear to me as I read their original papers that Newton was really in a different league. He really was, and that's why we talk about Newton and we don't really talk about Leibniz. They're they're an order of magnitude apart in mathematical depth. Leibniz was great, but Newton is really unrivaled. Maybe, to me, Archimedes is in the same league as Newton. Einstein, not too many. A lot of people like Gauss as a mathematician. I'm not very partial to Gauss. I don't like Gauss very much. I like Euler, though. I would put Euler in the league with these other people. But there are only a few. Interesting. Oh, wow. Oh, have you not heard this about Gauss? Mathematicians deify Gauss. I don't like Gauss. Yeah, I don't like Gauss too much. Because there are stories about Gauss. Now, these might not be true, but the stories are that frequently Gauss would discover things and then keep them in his drawer. And so over and over again, young mathematicians would come up with great things. Oh, look, I've discovered non-Euclidean geometry. Well, no, you haven't, because I had it 20 years ago. You know. So Cauchy's theorem, well, Cauchy didn't really discover it. Gauss already knew it. So Gauss did this to a number of people, and I don't like that. Not, I don't appreciate that. Anyway. Yeah, he was kind of a pill, it sounds like. Uh, <laughs> Just publish it. You figured it out. Why don't you publish yeah. it? And then especially yeah, if you do that snaky thing, hiding it, and then and then ruining it for the next person to discover it. And meanwhile, the world could have been farther advanced. if you. But, you know, he had this expression, few but ripe. That's what he would say. The results were few. He would wait till they were ripe. Few but ripe. I don't like it. Well, no, that would be great. That would be another good book. And I'll, my fantasy when reading this book was like, what if Newton, what if we, we did a science fiction, fan fiction book about Newton if he never was into alchemy or, you know, spent less time, you know, torturing counterfeiters? Although you might not, do you know this, that the, why coins have ridges? Do you know why, uh, like a quarter has a ridge? No, I don't know. Why do they have ridges? Have you ever looked at a quarter? So you should look at a quarter sure. sometime because uh, they have ridges, but pennies don't. And so why, why does one, or a nickel, a nickel doesn't have a ridge, but right. a dime does. Um, and, and so you go through it. And uh, those are called flutes, or um, there's another technical name for them. So back in Roman times, what people realized, and actually this goes back even further than that, but Roman uh, times, what people would do is they take a quarter or whatever it was back then, a, a ducat or whatever they called it, florin, and they would grind it down. 
and they would grind down the gold or the silver coin and they would get off just enough material that they could eventually get enough coins together. They could have a whole new coin. So it's called uh-huh. it's a form of inflation and it was a form of counterfeiting and coin clipping. So for thousands of years, this was a big problem. In fact, it was a problem in medieval England in the uh, early part of the second millennium. So much so that our fellow Jews uh, were accused of being the ones responsible for it. And it led to the Jewish expulsion in the 1200s of all Jews from, from England. Uh, and actually, the problem was solved by Isaac Newton. He realized he could take a coin and put ridges on it, and then the, it, it could not be ground down without uh, making it evidentiary to anyone who looked at it. So actually, and then soon thereafter, the Jews hmm. were permitted to move back to to uh, to the land of England. So it's, it's very interesting that he, he did so many interesting things, but I still would have liked to know what would his life been like if he didn't practice alchemy and and also, you imagine how many things he could have done. He could have had a real career, Steve. <laughs> he could have been somebody. He could have been a contender. Um, now, here's another thing that I can't help but, uh, by the way, I read this book twice, but but the first time I read it, it was slow and leisurely. The second time I read it just recently, I read it in like a day. It's such an, e- and it's 300 pages. It's not like, like some min- the lightweight book, Steve. And it's not, you wow. know, it's a book with a couple equations, but not too many, some series, mm-hmm. some equation. Um, but you know, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, well, what if Steve's wrong? You know, he's been wrong before about this pandemic. Thing. No, no, that's for sure. <laughs> what if there's something to calculate that stands in relation to calculus as calculus does to, you know, algebra or linear, whatever. No, yeah. are we sure we have the final theory of math? Oh yeah. I don't make any claim about that. No, I know you don't, but, but, but what if, uh, what if there's even like more than infinity, you call it the infinity principle. Is there something? Is there a possibility? There's your co-author. No, no, no. There's your, uh, yeah, your muse. Sorry, you, I, you and your muse. Um, <laughs> could there be math that we just can't discover, or would universes that produce higher-order math be stillborn in the multiverse of mathematics? Oh, I, I expect there's a lot more math to be discovered, and probably a lot of it will be beyond us. Mm. Um, I do imagine a future where where the greatest mathematicians are the machines. And they're discovering fantastic things. And hopefully, they'll become good teachers. That's what I'm really hoping. You know that they will, they will find ways, or maybe we can program them to have ways of explaining things comprehensibly to us, so we can share in the pleasure of their discoveries. But, but I don't picture us being the greatest mathematicians for much longer. Um, I think we're already seeing it. I mean, there are a lot of examples now of computer-assisted proofs. There are also theorems being proven by computers for the first time. So, for instance, there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of results now, like the famous four-color map theorem. You know that you could color any map with just four colors, so that no two neighboring countries have the same color uh, under certain constraints on what's allowed as a map. That. Um, the best proof of that it took a long time to prove it. We we finally got a proof, I think, in the seventies. Um, Hawken and Appel, I think, get the credit for that first proof of the four color theorem. But they found, I mean, other people showed that there was a way to reduce the infinitely many possible maps to just a finite but large number of possible types of maps. Like there's certain equivalence classes of um, of maps, and if you could check that the four color theorem was true for each of those types you would have proved the theorem for all infinitely many possible maps. And no human being was able to check all those types, but computers did. And so we now know that the four-color theorem is true. 
as of the 1970s, but it's a big disappointment to mathematicians because we kind of already believed it was true. We wanted to understand why it was true. Why does it have to be true? And we still, the computers have not explained that to us yet. And maybe they don't know why themselves. They're just calculating and don't have any insight. So that's where I think the interesting future is for math and possibly for science is this question of insight. Like right now and ever since Newton, we have cherished insight that not only do our laws of physics and to some extent chemistry and biology tell us what will happen, 